Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. Michael and I will share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael, myself, or forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, your co-hosts, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is Thursday, April the 7th, 2016. Our call-in number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. And before I turn it over to Michael, um, since we're continuing, anybody who normally calls in on the Recovery Wednesday as a support and offering Direction, if you would press one, that'll put you at the top of the line. We have several hands already up, but first let's welcome Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome everybody. We're honored that you're here to join us and uh, share this space. And continue our conversation from yesterday, we're going to uh, please stay on track with the uh, with the topic of recovery. And uh, we were in the middle of a, a fairly extensive conversation about uh, the uh, the resistance that can come up when one has to overcome denial and really start to look at the fact that one has a problem. And, uh, Jeannie, I did talk with uh, Dr. Andraki, and he was going to call in and he had some thoughts for us. Is, uh, is Stephen with us? Are you there, Stephen? Hi, Stephen. Good morning. Hey there, good sir. How are you? I'm, I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, good morning, Michael and Jeannie. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to uh, give my thoughts for the next 10 minutes, and then I'm going to have to return to my uh, normal schedule. But on a recovery, uh, I'd like to just, I'd like to start out uh, like I did before, explaining that I'm a, a medical doctor with specific qualifications in addiction medicine. It means different things to different people, but in my realm, that's uh, important. Uh, the other participants in Recovery Wednesdays, uh, Wednesdays come from all sorts of different experiences and educations, and that's important also. And for me, there's no right or wrong. Uh, I'm going to move beyond the judgment and say that my little brain cannot figure out this huge puzzle and that I'm only going to speak about the things that I know and what I offer people in terms of recovery. Now, it would be interesting to start with President Obama, because whether you agree or disagree with his policies, uh, we can admit one thing. He has a strength as a political figure to stand up and say, I used drugs as a teenager. He discusses that, and you can uh, look that up. Very interesting. He'll talk that his mind was confused, that uh, his issues of black and, uh, and non-elite, uh, that he used drugs. But he stands as a clear example, and he speaks about this frequently in his orations, that despite all odds, a single parent, poor, confused black, and use of drugs, that he has become the president of the greatest country in the world. Because he has unlimited potential, just like we all have unlimited potential. And when we understand that no matter our use, our addictions, our problems, that this part of us that is able to go beyond all of our thoughts that we've been having yesterday and a day before that we can become great, allows us to transfer beyond anything that our mind gives us limitations. And I think that's a fabulous example for all addicts to understand they can become something great. 
President Obama has proposed a $1.1 billion, with a B, dollar budget for what he describes as a prescription drug abuse uh, epidemic and a heroin epidemic in the United States that is killing more people than automobile accidents. This is killing people on the matter of hundreds per day, and it is disproportionately killing more childbearing females than any other group. That means that young women are using opioids that are dying from an overdose. That is strictly unfair. We can know why females might be using opioids to cover their pain and their issues. And we know that teenagers are confused. But this is something that is now becoming a talking point for, uh, for the nation and something that needs to be addressed. Of that, his advisors uh, recommended that he budget almost $1 billion towards medication assistance. assisted therapies are a way that medical providers can assist with addicts with opiate addictions in an illogical way, in some cases, of treating opioid addiction with opioids. Another way is by blocking the opioid effect by giving a monthly injection. All of these cases require the patient to participate and need to return. Methadone, which is the oldest and the most arcane of these, is not highly advisable. It's, uh, it's not easy to get to. Uh, there's not uh, centers in every uh, city. And also, there's no requirement that they participate, the addicts participate in any uh, recovery type of group. It's recommended, but it doesn't help. Suboxone, which is the brand name of buprenorphine, is similar to saying Kleenex is facial tissue. Is Suboxone is what I'm going to refer to because it's simply easier than saying buprenorphine, and there are other products on the market. Suboxone is known as a magic pill to some addicts because it makes them feel normal. It does, through its action, uh, it provides partial uh, opiate response, but it's not an easy transition. The patient must be in withdrawals before they start it, so it's not just a clean, nice transition. That it prevents further withdrawals, that allows the patient to feel normal, they can keep working, they can stay with their family, they can avoid prostitution, theft, stealing, to, uh, to get their money. They can avoid going to jail for being caught with illegal substances and avoid supporting the dealers and the cartels that are bringing uh, heroin into the country. But it has nothing to do with the medication. It has nothing to do with Suboxone. It has the, everything to do with the person. And, Michael, I've learned uh, everything that I know about my program from uh, listening to you and spending years with you and I am going to propose what I do for my addicts uh, when they come to treat me. The Suboxone only prevents the withdrawals and the, the continuation of the patient to, to do well on a daily basis, but I put the requirements that they must participate in a program. I have my support group that we offer once a week. We have NA and AA. This is a small community. They, each one of those uh, programs has its own issues that people tell me about. Everybody does not want to participate in AA or NA. And Dr. Tim was very uh, insightful to say that everybody should try everything. And I think that's true. And I encourage everybody to do everything. However, it's an obligation that somebody has to make that they are going to assist in their own recovery. That's a big job for a lot of people because they want something easy. You always talk about how something is supposed to be easy and how we want this uh, right away, but it doesn't happen. It takes a lot of work. It's not about the medication. It's about keeping the addict involved in the program. If he or she wants me to treat them with a medication to prevent them from withdrawing, from prevent them from stealing or prostituting themselves, they need to come in and they need to prove that they are engaged in a program. That's very helpful for some people. For some people, NA or AA or getting a sponsor is equally as helpful. I don't know. But President Obama and his advisors did not say we're going to invest $1 billion into an AA or NA. These programs of medication-assisted therapy have been advised through, the, uh, through, uh, it, through insight into the best uh, uh, treatment programs that, through analysis and uh, through, uh, through looking at the evidence, what has worked best. 
but AA and NA is nonprofit, and those do not accept the money. And so those organizations should stay uh, in, in business and should do everything they can to be addressing this. And I don't know what NA or AA, I don't know anything about these programs. Unfortunately, I can't teach them. I don't know how they're reaching out into the community to help with the heroin uh, epidemic. But this is all something that we must do because I, since I don't know about this, I can say what we must do to help with this epidemic and the death and the overdose and the, the craziness that happens when teens or grade school kids will take pills from the medicine cabinet, become addicted to prescription pain medications, then transition into heroin simply because it's cheaper and more readily available than pills. This is happening to our children. Back to President Obama, Robert Stutman, who's a special retired DEA agent, told us in a group that President Obama makes the attempt every day when he is with his family and at home to sit down and engage his children into thorns and roses. Thorns and roses is where you talk about the beautiful things in the day, the roses, thorns about the difficult things that happen in the day. I don't know of anything else that is more insightful than sitting down and talking with your children about things that are going on in their day. We've had addicts, Bill addicts who talk about their children who are bullied at school. They have no ability to talk about issues with their children until they've gone through the program and understand that their issues are their issues, that their children's issues are their children's issues, and that they will support them into understanding that they can make a choice, can decide how they feel. When an addict or with any of my patients come in and want to participate in a program and to understand they have a choice, and once they learn this, they can teach this to their children. They have a choice. Perhaps children will not go into the medicine cabinet and take prescription medicines in attempts to feel better about their life, about their parents, about their situation, about being bullied in school. This program is for everybody. This program is for addicts who can keep their children from becoming addicts, who can keep them from becoming a statistic for death and overdose in families who believe this will never happen to them. But indeed, police chiefs, indeed government workers, indeed rich people who believe the children would never have a problem, indeed have problems. Everybody has a problem. Everybody needs to figure out what program is best for them. Al-Anon is something I haven't heard on the radio. Al-Anon has helped a lot of people. Even if you're not an addict, you're still uh, uh, having having the issues surrounding alcoholism and drug abuse in your family is an option for people. I don't know about the 12 steps very well. I don't know about Al-Anon very well. All these are available in the community. You must find out. What can anybody do about the drug abuse problem? What can anybody do about the heroin epidemic? Well, I'm going to offer a few things. One is that if you go onto the Suboxone website, you will find the prescribers. You must be, uh, have a special training to be able to prescribe Suboxone. If you agree with it or don't agree with it, it would be a wonderful opportunity to call the provider, leave a message. We have a support group. I offer a support group for addicts. If you have an addict who does not want to go to NA or NA, who does not want to participate in anything, who does not want to talk about all of their issues, to come in and find about this, they can come to my program on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday nights, and we will meet with them free of charge and teach them about the things that they need to do. Number two, they can also speak to their medical provider and say, do you treat opium, opiate addictions? Addictions, you can say, are you interested? We have issues in the community. Would you be interested in taking your valuable time to be trained, to spend your valuable time to deal with addicts because this is an issue that the physicians can assist and to help in, and this is what we want to do and to help in because we've created it. We have prescribed too many opiate medications not myself. Uh, I may have done my part in this whole thing. I'm not going to disengage myself. But overall, that the physicians, in trying to do the best job that they can to treat people's pain, for people who are addicted to pain and addicted for the need to uh, not have pain, have been requesting medicines. We have done our best. Some maybe not have done their best. We have to stop this practice. We have to get people back into understanding they're going to have issues in their life. They need to control the issues. And we can support them by doing what we need to do, not by talking on the radio, not by listening, but by putting this to a support group where you are teaching, which you need to learn the most, 
if you are using this information to help people move into the right direction, whether it's AA, NA, Al-Anon, whether it's any type of program, whether you want to invent your own program, whether you want to use true forgiveness, we have these opportunities available. If we want to make a difference in the heroin epidemic, the overdose epidemic, and the, the, the death of, of, of the predict hundreds of thousands of individuals per year and increasing, we have to put our efforts, our knowledge, what we learn into a program, what we learn about taking responsibility for our life, that we can translate this into helping people. I've seen it happen. I've had tremendous successes for some people, but alas, most people do not come back to get their magic medicine. They don't come back to, uh, to, to stay out of withdrawals. The, they don't come back to stay out of jail or to get their family back. The addiction thoughts in their mind are so strong, so engaged, it's hard to disengage. We need something which is true forgiveness, responsibility thinking, responsibility action, to the thing they've never heard before, where they can see their life, see themselves, see their choices and options differently so they can move forward in life without the need to take addictive medicines that are not helping them, but they can't see that during the time. So, Michael, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to present. I hope that this has been helpful. I'm going to go and engage in a long day of dealing with uh, people who are in loss of their spouse in life-threatening situations and situations where they have a limited time to die. And I'm going to do the same thing that I do with an addict or with a young person or an old person. I'm going to hold the space open that they have a choice and how to live each moment of every day. And I learned that through the Truth Forgiveness Program, and I uh, hope that everybody is able to take action and opportunity to continue teaching this so that they can help people into their recovery for whenever it is. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome perspective. Thank you uh, very much. I know that uh, you look at that medicine cabinet that uh, mom and dad have their, uh, their pills uh, setting in, but um, when we met with the uh, head of the drug court, he was telling us that out there in Pahrump that uh, they've got uh, pushers coming out of Mexico that are actually handing drugs out to grade one, grade two, grade three students coming out of school. It's just uh, amazing. The, uh, the assaults in the community to the integrity of children. And uh, definitely the whole problem is one that needs to be addressed. And uh, thank you for doing your share and keeping that support group rocking out there. It's always a, a delight and a pleasure when we get out to uh, Las Vegas and Pahrump and get to work with you guys a little more. Thank you very much, Michael and Jeannie. And uh, I'll check in. I'll listen to, uh, continue to listen to the shows that I can't listen to live uh, on the archives and uh, I'll be helping out wherever I can. Michael, I think you're on mute. No, no, I'm not muted. Can you hear me, Jeannie? I, I can hear you now, but you were speaking after Stephen did, and I could hear you from the house, but I couldn't hear you on the phone. Hmm. Okay, I don't know, there must be okay. something going on with my microphone. All right, well, awesome perspective. And, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, a place where people are not able to uh, simply pull themselves away from uh, a drug and can, in a legal and financially reasonable way, wean themselves and free themselves off of it. And I certainly appreciate the fact that, uh, Dr. Andraki runs uh, support groups of uh, mind shifter support groups and assist people in learning forgiveness and uh, the work that he and his wife Claudia are doing out there in Pahrump is absolutely awesome and uh, we do get to uh, go out and work with them on occasion and it's always a, a privilege to do that. So we were in the conversation and uh, I think before I go into I was getting ready yesterday to uh, to read some of the um, stories that the mind was telling a uh, subject person. By the way, I did receive some communication from the young lady that we were uh, sharing about yesterday. And um, as I said, I had pressed fairly hard attempting to uh, frame a goal that might uh, be set and create enough stress to, to move into behavior that 
takes her to another level in supporting herself in her life. And uh, while my encouragement was get to a meeting, uh, there wasn't the ability to do that, but she did share with me a, uh, uh, an app that she found for her phone, which she was able to actually go to a meeting on her phone uh, from her home, which is pretty awesome. So there's a, a, and, and specifically, one of the things she found was that uh, was helpful. The app is called Marijuana Anonymous, and that she found that the conversation by those who'd been addicted to marijuana was different than other withdrawal conversations, and that she found it to be very supportive and was able to do it right from her phone. So anybody who's uh, who's got a challenge in that arena and wants to get your brain back, uh, a marijuana anonymous might be a way to uh, either supplement whatever program you're doing or get started on a program that gets you free. But in the meantime, our conversation yesterday was talking about how the uh, the mind can tell us all kinds of uh, stories to keep us out of uh, doing something about changing our lives. And you know, in in the case that we spoke of yesterday, there was a a recognition of the repeat of a parental pattern and just kind of carrying on with the good old family feeling. And so the, uh, when I strongly urged the attendance at an NA meeting, uh, along with the awareness that uh, they were false realities, what was shared were here, the stories. And what I'd like to do if, um, if Terry's with us, Dr. Tim and Gail uh, anyone else who's in the support arena around uh, withdrawal and uh, engaging in a program, perhaps address ways that you've seen uh, people buying into the stories and getting free of the stories that keep them from engaging and really, truly getting the support they need and acknowledging that they have a problem. Uh, of course, one of the steps which we talked about yesterday, if you weren't on the show yesterday, was to recognize that my life has become unmanageable. And if you want to hear that, I shared a little bit yesterday about uh, how this person's life had become unmanageable. And then we were just opening the door when we ran out of time to look at uh, the excuses the mind can give. So the text that I got uh, went along these lines. My worries about NA, I was pressing for her to go out like on the spot and get to an NA program was one, I'll be with a bunch of weirdos on heavy drugs. Two, I'll be around worse drugs like cocaine, which is something I absolutely cannot have any contact with. And, and, you know, for me implied in that is, well, you know, these other drugs are really a problem and marijuana is not really a problem. There's a, a little bit of convoluted thinking there. But uh, so the categorizing of other addictive substances as worse, there isn't a worse addiction than an addiction, one or another. And people, you know, I, I, I don't remember exactly how Gail uh, has said it several times. If you can roll it, smoke it. How, how does that go, Gail? Are you with us? I am with you. Can you hear me? I can loud and clear. And what, what's that little phrase that's cool that you have about if you can roll it, smoke it, shoot it, it what, whatever? It, How does that go? <laughs> it doesn't matter if it rolls off, blows off, or drips off the table. It's all a symptom of a much greater problem. There you go. Okay. So, so an addiction is an addiction. So the uh, the second uh, quote. Uh, objection to going to an AA meeting was I'll be around worse drugs like cocaine, which is something I absolutely cannot have contact with. Like you see, my marijuana is really okay. Three, I'll waste precious time that I could use to work and make money instead of driving back and forth. Four, I'll do all of the above and then not follow through like I do with other things. Five, I'll be shamed because people will know I'm there. What if people find out clients, partners? Uh, six, fear that I'll be uh, kicked out of my, uh, my job or lose my licensing. Seven, uh, the people at, at an NA meeting have real issues. Uh, I'm just doing a natural plan. And, and she acknowledges that she's kidding herself with that, but that's 
part of what her, her mind tells her. And number eight, I can function. I'm successful compared to most people at meetings, and people, the people there just won't get it. Um, they have no brain cells for the work to see the big picture. And, of course, that's a, a great uh, excuse and way to keep from acknowledging I have a problem and my life is unmanageable. The tenth point was that uh, the teacher will not know as much as I do about my needs and struggles. So if I have a sponsor, they're not going to know what I have to go through. I, I know better uh, would be the way I'd read that ninth objection. And the tenth one was, it's all on me to do my own work and have a lifestyle that is opposite to using drugs. And so, uh, Gail, seeing as how your mic is open and you're there, have you ever heard any of those kinds of stories people tell themselves when you uh, first uh, suggest? Or maybe you've even told yourself a couple of those stories. I know you've shared with me that you were first introduced to the idea of recovery, and it wasn't for 11 years that you actually entered into a serious recovery program. Thoughts? Absolutely. Um, I have used all of those excuses. And, really? Um, I, yeah, yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> um, I, I'm better than. I haven't done these things yet. I'm going to be hanging around a bunch of weirdos. I know more than what they know about what I need to do. Um, the inability to take directions from other people. And what ended up happening to me is that I had to get beat down and get into enough pain that I was willing to do something different to take to take direction from other people. Um, and my worst, my last drunk, the last time that I drank was not my worst, but it was my bottom because of what was going on inside my head. Um, they have another saying around the tables that says, uh, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer just doesn't go together. And another saying is that um, AA ruins our drinking um, because we start to gain knowledge and that we and and we know we start to learn things. We start to learn that we can do this another way, and we start to get into integrity about our lives and get out of denial and it becomes very difficult to drink after having certain amounts of knowledge about our disease. That's cute. AA ruined my drinking. It does. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it did. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, but it was also, um, they say that two things happen. We give people information about their disease, and they're going to do one of two things. They're going to continue on to the bitter end, which means that they're going to have to drink more in order to maintain that denial and get out of pain, or they're going to um, decide to do something different and start to work the steps, get a sponsor, go to meetings, and start to connect to the divine so they don't have to drink and use drugs again. Let's look at this idea of denial once again in, in the AANA context and in the why is this happening to me again work. And our definition, the way we language denial is that when I think or speak as though something outside of me is causing something to happen inside of me, then I'm in a state of denial. And what happens when I enter into that state of denial is that I dissociate from something painful that I don't want to look at, deal with, or own. That is, I hide it somewhere inside of myself so I can pretend that it's not there. My take is that all addiction, all addiction in every form, is simply a physical form of denial. When simple holding one's breath and carrying on the stories about how it's all somebody else's fault aren't powerful enough to keep those things in a dissociated state. These, these awarenesses that this is mine and it's about me keep cropping up in my face, then the physical form of denial of a drink or a drug is a way to push them back down again. So I, I see uh, to a great degree alcohol and drugs as simply physical denial, a way to maintain 
against all upward pressure. That is the pressure that the mind is trying to say, wait a minute, this is ours. You need to look at this. You need to face this. You need to deal with and own this. And the, the pushback of if I can drink enough, smoke enough, shoot enough, then I can keep hiding that for myself and go into some kind of another fantasy world uh, is really what drugging oneself is all about. And, of course, anesthetizing the pain along the way. How does that fit with your uh, understanding from the AA and NA work that you've done? Agreed. I can't say it any better. So I agree with everything that you said. Ditto. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, let's Um, see. Is is Terry with – oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to offer another story, um, but if you want to go to Terry right now, that would be great. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead, and we'll we'll jump on next with Terry. I don't I don't know for sure if Terry's even there, so go ahead. Um, one of the stories that I wanted to to offer, um, which which goes along with this individual that you're working with, is um, my last drunk wasn't like I said wasn't my first, but the the bottom in between my ears was the worst. Um, mental emotional pain that I went through and that was a part of my bottom that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous and what I did since I was bouncing back and forth out of AA um, for 11 years after I was initially introduced and the consequences for my drinking uh, led me to almost losing my children Um, DCFS had been alerted and um, we had a school counselor, and my daughters were going to counseling, and um, and I was told point blank by my counselor that if I drank or um, my caseworker that if I drank or drugged or allowed that man to move back into my house that I was going to lose my children, and and I drank again, um, and and that kind of guilt, shame, and remorse was a, a huge part of my bottom. And I reached out to the only person that I trusted at that time, and I was given suggestions, and I had all the excuses. I didn't want to drink again. I didn't want to deal with the consequences of losing my children, but I didn't want to go back to AA. And so I laid out all the reasons why I didn't want to go back to AA. And what I was told was sobriety first or you're going to lose everything else anyway. And then I was told to go to all different kinds of meetings and find my people, find my tribe. Um, and and that, that's what I was told to do, and that was life-saving suggestions for me, was the encouragement to go. Um, I was originally going to one set of meetings at one set place, and I was judging my AA experience based on that. And when I expanded my my group and looked for all different kinds of people um, and compared my experience, so I was going for the other single mothers that were able to stay sober, other um, women that were um, had similar uh, domestic violence background experiences, other women that had um, childhood sexual abuse experiences as well. And so that that was what I was suggested to me, and that's what I did. And it was very powerful, and I got some really great results and was able to gather those women that had similar experiences and um, and draw from their experience and, and stay sober for 16 years. So I wanted to share that. Awesome. And that's that's really powerful advice. You know, if you remember back when Dr. Tim introduced us to the uh, medical doctor who did a um, an NPR radio show on healing and pointed out that one of the things that he didn't learn in medical school that he had to find out for himself as he was facing his own imminent death 
was it took a community and a community of people who can be that space of love and hold that space. And, you know, just looking at uh, so many doctors who are waking up out there and really being that kind of support, you know, support listening to, uh, to Dr. Andraki and, uh, you know, looking at what Dr. Tim does of, of providing this space and being there for people in a way that uh, empowers community and there's a certain set of words in the ancient Aramaic that by the Greeks were translated as the kingdom of heaven. But in fact, those words properly translated say the community of love. And that's where the healing really happens when one finds that space and finds that community, which if you, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, and I've suggested it a couple of times, the movie and I'm talking to, of course, newcomers to the show and such, to really, it, it's like, I think you can order it on Amazon for $6. It's called Thanks for Sharing, but it really shows how important community is in that healing process. And for people who live in a world where I have to do it on my own, I have to do it by myself, it's not a likely project that anybody's going to white knuckle it as it's been called in the recovery community. There are perhaps a few people who can make it through that, but uh, it's not very common. And uh, a community of support is definitely a key component in the whole process. And when you talk about the, uh, the, the abuse aspect of it, the abuse that needs to be dealt with, the forgiveness that needs to occur to undo that old traumatic pain, Another piece of the puzzle I think that fits in in a lot of cases is that what's being dealt with is also multiple personality, that people form personalities over and through extreme abusive experiences, especially in early childhood, and that when one is in one personality, one can find some sort of solace and some sort of uh, sanity, but when another personality kicks in, then that solace and that sanity is lost and it's right back to the old way. And I think that one of the things that facilitates uh, moving into a degraded personality is alcohol and drug abuse. And so once again, if you remove that factor I think it becomes a lot easier for someone to stay in a consistent persona to access with support in a constructive way the aspects of the dissociated, dissociated personality that uh, sometimes comes up and takes over and forgive the components of that. I know I've had therapists over the years that have said that the only thing that they've seen that really integrates multiple personalities is that wake-up sheet, the reality management process. And so that's also another issue that often needs to be dealt with in a, uh, a recovery situation. So definitely part, a piece of the puzzle. And uh, Terry, did you have, are you with us, Terry? Um, Terry is not with us, but I would like to add one thing kind of along the lines. I thought you were going to say it there for a second. Um, Go for when, it. Gail, when you were talking about finding your tribe and that you finally found a group that also consisted of women who were in the same similar situations, whether it was single mom or, or the uh, spousal abuse or the child sexual abuse or whatever, those were actually the issues, the painful areas in your life that were driving you to the alcohol anyway. So just going to any AA group may or may not help you reach those deeper levels, but it sounds like you were able to find a group that had the similar uh, issues to face, and so you were able to not just deal with the alcohol, but deal with the issues that were driving you to the alcohol. Great point, Jeannie. Yeah, definitely. The uh, the space where, you know, if if I as one individual in a group have worked through a particular issue, I can be the support for someone else in that group being coming a step up if the work that's being done in the group is really about healing. And then the person who I perhaps was able to just give a hand to, there's an arena where they've resolved an issue and now they become my helping hand. And as long as it's in a, uh, a format of healing and uh, forgiveness, then that kind of support just moves people light years ahead in their process. Dr. Tim, do you have anything to share with us at this point? We haven't uh, haven't heard from you yet. Well, there's just so much to say. 
Um, I think probably the brain cells that are firing strongest right now are the ones that are related to trauma. And in in your terminology, Michael, the automatic decision-making system kind of ties in here. So some right. of the best some of the best therapy techniques I've ever learned it, it it shouldn't be surprising to hear me say they're exactly in line with all of the work that is on whyagain.org because the first time I listened to Michael's 4-hour audio CD it just felt like I was coming home this is what I've been trying to teach people for 30 years in therapy. So the very best of the best, every time I learned them, someone would say, now these are extremely effective processes for undoing and for letting go of what doesn't belong in your system. And when they don't work, what you're probably going to discover is that there's been a trauma that has locked energies, they didn't say the word energy, but locked things down in a person, and they will need or they could benefit then from specific trauma resolution techniques. And so the 12-step programs are fabulous, and in, in many ways when people come to some of my talks and they come to the support groups, they say, oh, you spent a lot of time in the rooms. You you must be really familiar. You must have done a lot of work with the 12 steps. And the reason they're they're saying that is because there's so much good in both of them that overlaps. And yet the 12-step program, as it is, tool for helping people through the effects, to to resolve the effects of past trauma – and neither are most of the therapy techniques that are standalone therapy techniques, unless, of course, they're specifically designed for this purpose. So that's something I want to point out to people. If I had childhood sexual abuse, physical, vis- uh, verbal, emotional, sexual, I probably downloaded energies. And as Dr. Rice was just saying, I probably formulated different aspects of my personality, sometimes into full-blown different personalities to handle that. If not, I may have just learned a pattern of dissociating from whatever events were happening at the time and distancing myself from it in a way that's like splitting off and floating up in the corner of the room and looking back at the child who's being abused. As a coping mechanism, based on the best I have available to me at the time when I'm a child and I'm dealing with a power person who's not coming at me as a a space of love. However, that coping mechanism is very simplistic, it's very primitive, and it's not the best I have available to me by the time I get to be 20, 30, 40, or 50 years old. And yet, unless I undo the energies that have that locked in my system, and unless I get access to the automatic decision-making system within me and dismantle its auto-responses, that's all I'll have available to me, even when I'm 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, and those old energies get triggered. So that's what got resonated for me listening to this, that, that there's just, when people have had deep, severe trauma in their childhood, they may benefit by having specific tools designed to help release those energies and to dismantle the automatic decision-making process, which kicks in whenever it's triggered. And, of course, that happens outside of our conscious awareness. So it happens so quickly that we don't get access to it. Over time, if we're taught, we can learn to go back and identify the patterns and and. The, you know the breadcrumbs, the trail that that show. Oh, you know what? <laughs> the last few days, I must have been operating from that automatic decision-making process because I can look back and see how I did a whole bunch of things that, right now, I really wish I hadn't done. 
And then I can go back and start looking at what were the antecedents, what came before that, and what were the signs that I might get triggered, and start using the tools like those that are available on whyagain.org. And if I have trouble and I get stuck using those tools, which are very powerful, if, I, if I'm in a 12-step program and I've got my tribe in a good support group and I'm still stuck, I recommend people look at getting some specific help to resolve the effects of past trauma because there are some wonderful techniques that have been developed in the past 20 years that do not require years laying on the couch and talking about how your week went that are very targeted, that are very effective, and that people are getting tremendous benefit from on a regular basis. Awesome. Right on track. I'm in full agreement with that one. And, you know, it's it's um, also wonderful. There's a a game that we play that we particularly introduce in Laws of Living that we call the Regulatory Peach Game, and that is where we invite others and stand in willingness when we receive feedback rather than get lost in defensiveness or, you know, traumas or, or um, tantrums or attack, where you enlist the people around you to support you when behaviors aren't really working, when language isn't really on track, and the regulatory speech game, we call it, uh, is really about speech and looking at speech patterns. And when we speak unconsciously or behave unconsciously, to invite those around us to lovingly offer support by offering, well, gee, did you notice that, you know, you just said to yourself that what you really never wanted to do again was scream at somebody and rage at somebody. And so notice there's a part of your mind that's engaged in screaming and raging. How did it feel when your power person did that to you? Or, you know, any other form of behavior that really isn't working. And as you say, that was a a great way to to put it down there, Tim, is, uh, gee, I noticed over the last few days I've been doing that behavior. Then maybe I'm reacting from, I'm, I'm being driven by, that unconscious dynamic and it's awesome that the only language on the planet Aramaic that has built into its structure an understanding of the functioning of the unconscious mind is it's it's just right there the whole understanding of it and how it impacts our perception decisions and behaviors and how we can be run by it so the the wake-up process and the willingness to just gently open a space to receive feedback can be one of the most desirable things you can have. And yet, especially for uh, a a dissociated mind state that says, ooh, if somebody tells me there's something wrong with me, then I have to, you know, be right, I have to attack, I have to make sure they know it's their problem and their fault that it's not me, because if they weren't right, they didn't do it perfectly, then they were attacked and, you know, by their power person. So to really start to look at that whole power person dynamic is such a big key in recovery and ending the game of uh, the need to anesthetize oneself and uh, stand in codependence. Any other thoughts for you, Tim? Well, um, I just thought I should say some of those techniques by name, and of course the technique is only as good as the uh, practitioner and the relationship between the practitioner and the client, but some of the techniques I was referring to are coherence therapy, and there's a a new website for that, and another one is... um, E-M-D is in dog, E-M-D-R, and that's a specific trauma reduction technique. And another one is um, the uh, traumatic incident reduction, T-I-R. And there's another one that people might find in their area. It's called Developmental Needs Meeting Strategies, DNMS. And each of these are powerful tools. They're they're so similar at times in some ways to my eyes and ears that it's amazing that they all develop separately. But 
And again, in the hands of a very good practitioner and in the context of a trusting relationship between the practitioner and the client, it's a phenomenal set of tools. Well, it's interesting when it appears that things have happened in isolation. I think the truth is that it really didn't develop in isolation or separate from somebody else. There's a, some interesting information around about uh, patents, for instance, and how within hours of each other, some radically new idea was patented in maybe three different places in the planet at the same time. And to me, what that says is that energy was moving on the planet, ready to find an instrument or a vehicle to come through or to come out through. And so, you know, there maybe were three people who were energetically ready to do that. And so they each came up with what they thought was their idea. Cause I think the truth is there is really one mind out there that, is uh, in the ancient teachings called the mind of Christ that can teach us everything that we need to know. And so I, I suspect that those therapies perhaps weren't so independently developed, but were practitioners who were in a, a resonant state that were able to receive those instructions and bring them into a world in a functional way. And uh, of course it just uh, reinforces the whole process of uh, the universe is here conspiring to heal us, but we really need to step into a space of willingness. That's, uh, that's such a huge piece of the puzzle. You know, oftentimes people will want to put the, uh, the healing, and as, as you often say, Tim, no, it wasn't me. It was you who took the tool and put it to work. Want to put the, uh, the onus on the support person as opposed to one's own new choices or decisions and behaviors and so definitely in the um, recovery arena the uh, the work of willingness the the ability to acknowledge i have a problem my life is unmanageable i need help i'm willing to be coached i'm willing to be supported i'm willing to move forward and i'm willing to acquire some new schools skills and tools to uh, to do that moving forward so anything else, uh, Gail, at this point, point uh, for you to share? I'm pretty complete right now. So Awesome. Well, thank you for your input. And Jeannie, do you have anything else to share uh, from, uh, from your perspective in supporting people in this healing process and especially around addiction? Um, the only thing would be, you know, I mean, I love that how – both Gail, you, Dr. Tim, Dr. Andraki, all of you have had a little bit different input of what can be done and how they all blend so wonderfully together. And I think, you know, it's just putting all the tools to work and, and what works for one person, you know, might not work for another person, but the tools are out there. And that willingness is the big key because, you know, there's no excuse to not uh, have the help because you all have just named at least four or five different things that would help a person to move beyond that addiction. And I think that's awesome. And beyond it all is that understanding that the addiction is just the effect that, you know, you can do all kinds of things to attempt to change the effect, but until you do dig down underneath and look at, you know, whatever it is that drove the person to anesthetize himself. And until that is dealt with, then the other, you know, you can change it, but it'll probably just change to something else. Some people let go of, of one drug and just pick up another one, whether it's busyness or like we were talking yesterday, sugar seemed to be about four different people that were either texting me or in the chat room or on the phone that uh, sugar was their issue. And so when Bill brought that up yesterday at the beginning of the show, you know, it was like my phone was just going crazy, people asking questions and so sometimes it's what might be considered a simple addiction, but like you said, an addiction is an addiction. Right. Right on, exactly. And so what we're here to do is to provide the tools out of the first century Aramaic that will support and assist people in being able to recognize that there is support. One doesn't have to do it alone. 
that if one tells themselves a story out of some form of hostility or fear or isolation, that that story is always false and the willingness to reach a handout to be uplifted. And there are so many circles of influence where we can capture that uplift and the willingness to step out of the circles where there isn't support for that. One of the other um, issues that came up in the conversation around uh, the person we have been discussing anonymously was uh, that um, her husband was also uh, smoking pot. And the invitation on my part was, well, it's, uh, you're going to have to enlist him in the process. Well, you know that, and, and the story was, well, but that's just too much to take on at once. I found if I just try to take on, I'll just do this on my own. And my offering is I think one needs to recognize if one is addicted, one doesn't live in the space of their addiction and not fall back into the old pattern, you know. I think you've said it before, Gail, the alcoholic can't live in the bar. It just doesn't happen. What's your uh, input, Gail, to one who has a spouse who's practicing an addiction when uh, the other spouse is uh, wanting to let go of that addiction? What, how do you see or how have you seen it effectively handled in, uh, in relationships? I've seen it go in two different directions and it's very similar to what you say about what happens to people that grab onto these, the Aramaic forgiveness tools as well. Um, I've seen it uh, go to where um, one spouse gets sober and goes to meetings and gets a sponsor, starts working steps and the other spouse decides that they like it. They like it. They like the influence. There's a little bit of resistance, but they they join them, and I've seen the best recovery um, couples or people in recover, um, recovery as couples, how they enhance their marriage and form that pagra that we talk about in, um, in Laws of Living, and they're able to um, have the tools, and they work the tools together. Of course, they're not each other's sponsors, but they're, they're support. They have separate sponsors. And they work together and they work the steps and they go to meetings and they're wonderful, wonderful models of, of relationships. Um, my experience has not been that. Um, well, um, I have that experience now. Um, but when I first, the best way to describe my formers and my relationship, because we're both drug addicted alcoholics that are, are very violent um, is that crabs, if you, if you take one crab and put that crab in a bucket, that crab's going to be able to escape. And what they do is they put other crabs in the bucket. So they're too busy fighting each other to be able to escape. And that's what we did. We fought. And um, one of us would get into recovery and the other one of us would pull the other person down. And, um, and that would happen to both of us. I would get in recovery. I'd be doing good. I'd allow him to pull me down um, and then, and vice versa. I pulled him down several times as well. What had to happen for me is um, the courts had to separate us, um, uh, order protection. Uh, that allowed me two years to get into recovery and do my work. Um, I thought after I did my fourth and fifth step that I could get back together with him um, it was different for me, but it wasn't different for him. He was still using, and there were several times when I could have relapsed, um, and I finally moved away. I finally had the strength, and um, there was an opening for me to move, and um, and that's what I did. And right now I'm in a, in a relationship with somebody that is in recovery as well, and we have the same language, and we have the same tools, and um, – we're able to work through our issues by using that language. So that, that is my awesome. experience and that's what I've seen. Awesome input. Well, we're down to the last few seconds, so we'll have to uh, close the show out. We're honored for everybody who chooses to join us. And uh, if this show has been meaningful, if you've got somebody who has a drug or alcohol problem, take yesterday's show, take today's show, get the MP3 of it, attach it to an email and send it to them. You might save a life. In the meantime, Create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and myself, Jeannie Rice, as we present the internal Aramaic process of forgiveness. We are here every Monday through Friday on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael Jeannie or Aramaic Forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.